the N-word was sort of like subterfuge to the whole thing. It sort of played upon this idea, this false notion that the Tea Party movement was inherently racist. And, you know, there are people in the Democratic Party who knew that that was a way to undermine this organic grassroots thing. And I think Breitbart's point, and it's a legitimate one, is that the way you devalue this organic movement is to claim racism. This was a stunt. They wanted to provoke you, my friends. They wanted to provoke you, and guess what you did? You did nothing wrong. You did nothing wrong. You said kill the bill. You said kill the bill. Rep. Andre Carson said that I was confronted by 15 different people who said the N-word 15 times in a sea of new media. Everybody put your cameras up in the air. Everybody put your cameras up in the air. Put your cell phones up in the air. Everyone put your cell phones and your Blackberries up in the air. We have a sea of new media here to capture the lies. Look at that, mainstream media, you bullshit artists. You hateful bastards. How dare you impugn these people's reputation? Even if there was one person, the ease with which you used it to ruin the whole, it's despicable. The new media is taking over where the old media failed. Yes, they failed, my friends. Yes, they failed. Okay, people, let's begin. Lift off! Are you ready to be baited? With the truth? Good, because you're listening to the Truth Bait Podcast, Episode 1! Episode 1! Episode 1, Jeremy. It's Tuesday, February 21st. I'm documentary filmmaker Andrew Marcus. With me is another documentary filmmaker and brilliant Alinsky tactician, Jeremy Siegel. Jeremy? Oh, please... Don't associate me with that man. <laughs> yes, but you do hold the honor of being the person I know with the most brilliant Alinsky mind. You think like them. It's what makes you so good at what you do, Jeremy Siegel. I do not. I only understand how they think and apply it on occasion. Somehow you are able to be one with them, Jeremy. You're one with the uh, with the Linskyites. Uh, <laughs> You're not going to glue them to me. <laughs> Much of our work has been centered around the First Amendment and media criticism, and in fact, one led to the other. Covering this protests and witnessing. What? I'm sorry. You this interrupted me on my reading. What, Jeremy? This is true. Well, I, yeah. So, <laughs> go ahead. Covering protests and witnessing the disconnect between what we were documenting on the ground and what was presented on the evening news has been a defining feature of the work we've produced for years. Jeremy, do you agree? Yes, but uh, you are actually reading. I Well, I prepared because this is episode one and I want to be prepared, <laughs> Jeremy. You said I interrupted your reading, and I was like, no, he's not really reading a script. Are you actually reading a script? Well, there? no, it's not a script. It's it's notes, um, and notes. I should be reading like you know parts of the notes and then be a little extemporaneous, and I'm failing at that because this is episode one, and I have some growth that I apparently need to uh, 
accomplish. But uh, yeah, so I'm glad Do you, you have a teleprompter. I'm glad you agree. I'm glad you agree. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I'd be doing better if I had a teleprompter. Um, I look. I want to tell the listener about us and what we're doing here and why we're doing it. And I want to tell them they're gonna they're gonna hear. Uh, you know, work from our archives on this show, on the Truth oh, Date podcast. For sure. Uh, for sure. Which, by the way, is going to come to you twice a week, Tuesdays and Fridays. Be ready every every week, twice a week, without fail. There will be no Tuesday or Friday. We are not here. To the best of our ability. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> Um, it, 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 by way of example, that first clip you heard that we opened uh, the inaugural episode one with uh, was Andrew Breitbart in the cold open from uh, the documentary Hating Breitbart, which I produced and directed uh, back when Andrew was on his meteoric rise to fame in 2010. Deep from the archive, too, because you could you could hear in Andrew's uh, brilliant uh, rally cry to the sea of citizen journalists that were in front of him to put your cameras and your phones and your blackberries right blackberries <laughs> it dates it the scene is Who evergreen until he says anymore. until he says blackberry <laughs> my kids might be might ask what is a blackberry uh, however it was with great providence that you, Andrew Marcus, were uh, blessed with the insight and foreknowledge uh, to attempt and begin documenting Andrew Breitbart's Andrew Breitbart's meteoric rise in the media warfare in which we exist to this day, and uh, that is a great clip to kick off our. For show with. Thank you, brother. Thank you for that. Yes. That was uh, right place, right time, and Andrew Breitbart took a chance on uh, on an unknown filmmaker. So that was uh, and that was very Andrew Breitbart. But he was speaking at that Tea Party rally, by the way. Uh, that was in Washington, D.C. on tax day in 2010. And just by way of background, uh, he was so upset because he had just exposed the Democratic Party and the media you know, colluding uh, to uh, uh, smear the Tea Party with a racist libel that they had shouted the N-word at Andre Carson 15 times uh, when they were walking to Congress to uh, to pass uh, Obamacare. And, you know, Andrew, it's very interesting what he says there. He says, they try, it was a setup. They tried to set you up. And... Doesn't that remind you of January 6th? Completely. Right? But the difference being that on January 6th, they took the bait. That was another setup. Absolutely. And the way that he proved them wrong is where he puts up, he says, you know, put your cameras up in the air, put your phones up in the air. There's a sea of new media. And that's how he was able to do it. And that's how we are going to are going to produce this podcast. That's how we're going to be able to do it. It's with a sea of new media and it's with all of the listeners uh, who are not just listeners. You're, you're going to help co-produce this podcast. And we're going to talk a lot more about that later on in the podcast, but you know what? Let's get right to it. Enough about us and enough about why we're doing this. Let's do what we're here to do. 
Jeremy? Is that part of your script? No, that was that end was improv. <laughs> I'm into it already, Jeremy. I'm ready. <laughs> That's good. All right. I'm growing right here live on air. Speaking of citizen journalists. Ooh, that Jeremy, that was very good. I'm gonna give you applause too because that's Because I know what you want to talk about first. That was a very good segue. What's the story of the day? James O'Keefe. Yes. I think he is the perfect inaugural story. First of all, his background, you and I both know him personally. Yes. We have we have extensive background with him. I know him from uh, the days of filming the documentary. James was in the documentary, uh, came to know him, uh, and you have your own uh, uh, experience with James. I've worked with James. James, a friend. Um, it's like over ten years now. So yeah, I've been on the road with him. Uh, I've run a camera for him. Uh, been around uh, some of his investigations. And uh, it's it's been nothing but a great experience each and every time. So it makes us biased in this moment, but it also makes us uniquely experienced in this moment. So take that with you know take that with what we're about to present. Uh, do you? We should give background on on what has happened to James O'Keefe. I don't have clips on his on the background of this story, uh, but I do. You know, we can we can talk about what happened to him. He has resigned from Project Veritas. There is there has been a coup inside Project Veritas. What happened? So, for anybody that doesn't know, which I would say is probably hard to believe at this point, but you might not know James O'Keefe from Project Veritas, but if you still don't, you know many, many, many of the stories that he has uh, uncovered and some of the best, probably the best investigative journalism that has ever existed in this in the history of this country. It's certainly in our modern age, that's for sure. Yeah. Um back to acorn and of course the most recent being uh the pfizer investigation that exposed a pfizer executive that was clearly a dei hire and talking about the things in which pfizer is currently discussing doing and manipulating the covid virus in order to manipulate or create new vaccines and basically pocket a whole lot more cash than they have been at the expense of the public's health. It was the biggest um, story in Project Veritas's history. History. Something and like got 50 million stories. views. Yeah, something like 50 million views on the video. Um, and then a follow-up video in which he confronted this executive and he lost his mind. The executive attacked James and his team, destroyed his, smashed his iPod, iPad, locked him in a pizza restaurant and called the police because he was claimed to be scared of James and his team. So he locked himself in the same room with them. It was just incredible, incredible um, visual media and uh 50 million views so, right then that yeah that story had 50 right. million views it was the biggest story they've ever had so yeah i just said that well and so did i and and he uh then two days later the narrative changes doesn't it and we're no longer talking about pfizer we're talking about the implosion inside of project veritas 
So all of a sudden, the headlines say James has been put on paid leave and he's going on vacation for a couple of weeks. And everybody's a little bit sort of shocked to see this. And if you know James, uh, you know James basically doesn't hardly ever take a vacation or any time off. He works 80, 90 hours a week. It's 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 really kind of crazy and very impressive, uh, his drive that he has. But he's a younger guy. He's in his mid-30s still, and he's he's got uh, some energy to spare, I guess. Um, and so... Everyone's sort of left wondering what's going on in the midst of that. Project Veritas releases another video, follow-up video, an ambush of the vice president of Pfizer, which was actually quite poorly uh, produced. And it was without really, James. It was without James in it because now they put James him on leave. Been on paid leave, right? And it's sort of everyone's you know, basically speculating what's going on here. And nobody and was hearing from James either. We didn't, we didn't exactly know what was going on. You and I right. both reached out to James, but we didn't know what was happening. James all of a sudden just was gone from the scene. Right. And, and so uh, then there's a big blowback. Donors send a letter to the organization demanding that the board reinstate him. Basically, everybody starts to think there's something nefarious going on, but nobody quite knows for sure. And the board and the current executive director, Daniel Strack, who's a former Goldman guy, is saying, we love James. He's the best. He just needs a vacation. You're all jumping to conclusions that aren't true. And... Here we come to find, basically, yesterday, James has been forced out of the organization. They're still saying he has not been forced out. But he has. He has been. It's clear. It's it's so obvious what's going on at this point that... S- there's a fox in the hen house and maybe many foxes in the hen house if Project Veritas is... The hen house and uh that james has basically been put in a position he 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 was actually removed with he out pay so that what part wasn't true he he released a video yesterday that that basically spelled out some of the things that had been happening he was he was yeah, we're finally uh, getting his side of the story all we've heard for two weeks is whatever the board put out Right, because the board asked him not to talk. That's right, and he right. honored that. And he honored it, and he was uh, prohibited from talking to donors. He didn't respond to any of my texts. And did he respond no, to you? No, no, nothing. And usually he does. Usually well, he has some, now since something. the since yeah. he released his video since the end of his two week lockup. He has responded to me, but so. So he puts this out yesterday, and we sort of had been thinking ourselves, like, the organization is severely damaged here. This is an organization that he built from the ground up, started with nothing after his acorn story back in, you know, 2010. And uh, he's taken it from, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars a year in, in 
revenue donations to over $20 million uh, in their operating budget. He does everything for the organization. He trains the journalists. He, he runs the organization and he does the fundraising. He goes on speaking tours basically to fire up activists around the country. And, and he carries all the risk. He carries all the risk, Jeremy. Anything that and happens is his fault. His name's attached to it had his house raided he's been in jail he's been targeted by the fbi and i have a clip on that i have an excerpt up from his video specifically on that because it's shameful you want to hear it yeah okay the external threats and pressure inflicted against myself and some of us has been unimaginable i'm going to summarize them Handcuffed by the FBI on two separate occasions, 12 years apart. Having my phones confiscated and private information leaked to the New York Times. Being placed on effective house arrest for three years between May of 2010 and May of 2013. Being sued dozens of times. Being served two separate criminal grand jury subpoenas in New Hampshire in the last 10 years. Getting pursued in a high-speed chase by a New Jersey education union official on Interstate 80 in Passaic deposed many times, suffered through mediation with insurance companies where they had all of our emails. They had everything. But they evidently didn't have anything on me. Getting my home raided by the FBI, having my loved ones put in handcuffs in the hallway. In the United States of America, it's absolutely shameful. And these are, this is all being conducted by so-called liberals. Right. And this is a video that was released yesterday. It was leaked. Uh, James, after uh, being sort of out of the public view and remaining silent for the last uh, week or 10 days or so while this has been, while these internal struggles have been going on in the organization that he founded and is being forced out of, uh, basically went in yesterday on President's Day to uh, give this prepared speech statement to his staff and team of journalists basically explaining to them what's been going on and this was part of those uh, remarks basically talking about the ups and downs of the organization and and his career you know and time with it and uh, he really has put his own life on the line (laughs) to to do this Um, so it's and he he goes on to state like why is all of this happening now on the heels of our biggest story we've ever had? It just isn't that almost the question that answers itself. That's right. And I, and I think that it's, you know, from having a little bit of inside knowledge of how things work uh, over there and at least knowing James and I've never known James ever to be untrustworthy. um, I've always found in my relationship with him, him to be above board knowing how closely he's watched right he has a microscope on him he knows everybody it. is waiting for him everybody that disapproves of him and dislikes him is is waiting to get james o'keefe it's like the biggest get they could ever get because he's the one that gets all of them um and so They've been waiting for this. And so for 13 years, you know, and he explains running his organization the exact same way. Now, it's not his. 
It's a 501c3. It's a charitable organization. It has a board of directors. He's accountable to. There's bylaws and and uh, you know structure that he has to adhere to. He doesn't own it. Yeah, it's but if you look at the plaque on his desk, wants. it says founder and CEO. And I think that's, you know, I mean, yes. But it's, it's his. Right. right. It exactly. is. It's his. It's his. So there's some, there's, there is, there's legal. Uh, well, let's put it this way. Know, it's the, not his, but it's him. Right. I mean, he is the identity, the, the, the organization. It's, it, if you. The soul. If you had, right. I mean, so how it could go on without him. Uh, he's not the only person there, and he makes it clear many times in this speech, and I've heard him do it many times, that he could not do what he's doing without his team at this point. It's become a big organization with over 60 undercover reporters or journalists that he has, and there's other people involved, um, but he's the front man. He's the face of it. I'm working and to get one of them on the show, one of his undercovers. Do you think he will? Do you think I, he I don't know. It's t- It's tough. They're all in a tough spot. They have it. Frankly, they have a choice to make, don't they? Are they going to stay with the organization that is already funded, has funding momentum? It's probably going to continue to exist in some for, in some form or fashion for a little while. Do they stay there and wait until the Steve Jobs moment where James is is where they beg James to come back and the board folds? Well, you. You haven't heard the latest update, but first I'm going to play a clip that I have uh, from the end of this video, which is sort of what he he came up with to try to salvage the organization. When you and I spoke earlier about this, we kind of thought this is where he has to go because who could trust it at this point, knowing that this internal struggle is going on? Uh, so here he's kind of talking about moving forward or, or if it can move forward. Your actions over the same period to undermine Veritas and its future, including airing confidential employment matters publicly, has broken trust. I cannot in good conscience return to such a mismanaged organization. This is a letter that he wrote to the board of directors and to the people who have been pushing him out. I have, no, I have not responded privately or publicly because there is no rational, appropriate response for the emotional circus that has been created by your actions. I expect the board to resign by the end of the week. Project Veritas, including any employees who choose to stay, will go on under my leadership with newly appointed professional board members and officers prepared to exercise their duty of care and duty of loyalty to the organization. That's what a board does. They exercise duty of loyalty and duty of care. So it's interesting, you know, duty of, of, of care. You know, they have to, like, it seems pushing James out is the worst thing you could ever do for this organization. Well, they're see, but they're claiming otherwise they're claiming that James was creating a toxic work environment and that he was uh, recklessly spending donor funds and that pushing him out or, you know, that he's pushing himself out. This is what they're claiming. This is what their narrative is, is that he's right, removing himself are- and that he, uh, this was this was a six month wrap on the wrist, essentially a punishment, so that he would correct his behavior, and that that's acting in the best interest of the organization. And if he chooses to leave, he chooses to leave. I don't buy it. I mean, he there some of the things they're claiming uh, that he was spending too much money on black cars to go to meetings, and there'll be more claims now that he's yeah. left. There'll be bigger. It's, you know that they held. I'm sure they held back on whatever it is they're going to unload on him with. 
I'm not sure that it's 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 because the stuff they've already put out. It's like what? It, first of all, he's a CEO of this twenty million dollar organization, so he's not expected to to take a, an appropriate vehicle to a meeting or to to work to an invest to it to an investigation or or a you know project that they're working on. Right, it and just putting make, it out there damages it's, it's, him. It's ridiculous, and 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 it's so ridiculous because he goes on to explain earlier in in the speech that as they were you know listing that as wait, one did of you the just grievance, say he goes on to say earlier in the speech? Does that <laughs> does that not make sense? No, you can't go on to say something earlier. Oh, well, I'm referring to earlier than this <laughs> clip that I'm playing. And so earlier in the speech, he goes on. Is By that the way, you can enjoy that from me for years to come. Yeah. Twice is a that week, better? Tuesdays and Fridays. <laughs> right. Okay. Got it. Okay. Earlier in this speech, he says. He I like says, that. That's good. He's, okay. So he says that they... In their list of grievances and talking about him taking too many black cars, which is basically a, you know, an Uber that's an SUV or something like that, which kind of makes sense, too, from a security standpoint. You want to make sure you're in a, you know, in a good, big, safe vehicle, especially being James O'Keefe, um, that they take too many trips to meetings and the IRS prefers that they have Zoom meetings. That's right. what one of his board members yeah, said. So the IRS can get instant minutes from <laughs> yes, Zoom. The IRS can watch the meetings <laughs> right. as they're streamed over from the Chinese-owned Zoom. Exactly. I mean this, and so this is this is somebody on his board. So I, you know, there something happened here that you know James got some people on his board somehow that shouldn't be there, and I have no doubt that it's been part of a long-term plan an operation to infiltrate and take down this organization it's the only thing that makes sense at this point and that's why i think it makes sense that he would say to the board you must resign at this point because who's ever going to trust them what whistleblower is ever going to come forward again he goes on you shouldn't do is try to destroy an organization that's not what a board member does i will return to work on monday that's today and work with the remaining team to go forward with our mission. Short of this action, I cannot in good faith return to the employment of an organization with leaders who are attacking me personally, making false and unsupported claims of improper management of resources about weddings and black cars, improperly airing employment issues related to me and others at Project Veritas. I was asked to be gone until the 20th. It is now the 20th. I asked the board to resign for their conduct and they did not. So currently, I have no job at Project Veritas. I have no position here based upon what the board has done. So I'm announcing to you all that today on President's Day, I'm packing up my personal belongings. So that's, you know, he's getting toward the end of his comments and he says what happened. He asked the board to resign. They had not by his deadline that he issued to them i think that would be the only thing that could salvage project veritas at this point i disagree i disagree there's another way and that is when funding collapses at project veritas unless they're just going to get you know institutional funding from the left from now on in which case then you're right it's toast but if if their funding collapses and the board basically crumbles then a new board can come in and beg James to come back. 
And, right. And then James comes back as a victor. I don't know, to your point, does a whistleblower ever trust this organization again, even under those circumstances? I guess it depends on if this board, as this board crumbles or as, as Project Veritas continues, do any of the whistleblowers end up having their identities exposed? Are there any betrayals like that? You know, if that doesn't happen, maybe it, maybe it's salvageable if James comes back. If James doesn't come back, it's they're done. That was my point. I mean, that you know, it's it, it, this this board has to be gone. It's why he he recognizes. Obviously, he knows better than anybody else that that you have to uh, get rid of these people. They're they're undermining the integrity of the whole organization now there what is if soros starts no, funding it no but it's not it's not going to be soros it'll probably be the Koch brothers who are the soroses of the right who are globalist organization also and this is the thing isn't that isn't a harder a, sell though that's a harder sell this isn't a left-wing attack this is a republican party attack these are republicans that want james o'keefe gone because James O'Keefe has been exposing Republicans and Democrats for over the last decade. Oh, that's very interesting. I hadn't even considered that. I had a, no, I had a no, different theory, but not that one. Not in my view. There's no way this is these people who are who are on his board. They're not. They're not Democrats. They're Republicans, and they're Marxist Republicans, and they're part of an establishment. That does not want an organization like Project Veritas existing because as long as an organization like Project Veritas exists with somebody like James O'Keefe, who's as dedicated as he is, is going to be a serious major threat to the power structure that is intact. And so, you know, he's not going to be stupid enough to have, you know, a bunch of Democrat you know, operatives get hired into his organization. I don't think that they could pull that off, but they certainly can get a bunch of people who are connected and associated with the right or with the GOP in there. And I think that's what happened here. But there is also another update that it sounds like you didn't see the update this morning. I didn't. So on, but do you want my theory on what happened or do you want me to wait until after the update? No, give me your theory. So my theory actually can work concurrently with yours, which I like well, your good. theories a lot. Good. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, the, we can both be right on this one. I think this was a robbery. I think it was a robbery. They went for the 20 million. Or it's probably more than 20 million. He raised 20 million in one year. That, did they spend all 20 million every year? Doubt it. So there's oh, probably, sure they there's probably you know, tens and tens of millions of dollars that just got robbed, essentially, from James O'Keefe's control. And right. so you, you, have a, you have a robbery, but this is what is so interesting to me. This does not damage James O'Keefe. This sends James O'Keefe even higher. He, he's going to be even bigger than he was before, if you ever thought that could be possible. Agreed. He, he, he's going to walk through the fire, the bonfire they have lit for him, and he'll be stronger on the other side. They didn't do this to destroy him. It's a robbery. And also what you said, I think. No, they want to destroy. They, it's a because he's not destroyed. This is whoever he's did not this destroyed. Knows he's not it's destroyed. a set. It's a setback for him. I mean, it's a setback for him. You know, he he it, has. Uh, you want my tinfoil hat? 
Yeah. <laughs> my tinfoil hat. Did he orchestrate this himself? <laughs> because, you know, imagine, let's suppose he's figured out that his board is flawed, has got major problems, and, you know, he's just had the biggest story of his career. There, he's Is Veritas ever going to top this? Maybe, but it's going to be a while. This would be a perfect exit point, and this is an excellent way to exit. He basically exits a... Uh, a, a uh, an attacked uh, martyr hero ready to take on the next uh, you know, slay the next dragon. Well, he does suggest a little bit about his future. Our mission continues on. I'm not done. The mission will perhaps take on a new name, and it may be no longer called Veritas. Project Veritas. I'll need a bunch of people around me. And I'll make sure. I'll make sure you know how to find me. Okay. Boom. So he's not done. No. He's he's like I'm, and I and I knew he wasn't going to be done. This guy has endured so much, and it's that's part of his identity. And he's about he to is. raise a bunch of cash that he'll have absolute control over. Right. So I think like it's a you great know, parachute wanted, exit. It's a great exit. So I think your your idea is is accurate. There's a whole bunch of money there, and they can steal all that money and pay it to themselves, perhaps, or you know, funnel it to whoever they want to, maybe get him out of the way. And it it's a setback, probably for him. I mean, he's in a you know a really good organization now that he built, and you're going to take him out. You know, so what does he have? access to there you know that that could be cut off he's not going to have access to those funds you know so his budget's taken away but here he is he's telling all his staff look i'm going on and you can come with me i'll make sure you know how to find me right but i hope he leaves some spies behind (laughs) to record a bunch (laughs) of video from inside whatever remains of project veritas I uh, wouldn't be surprised if he's already had some people on dates with board members. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> be careful so, which way you swipe. This morning, uh, one of my favorite news sources, the Gateway Pundit reports, Project Veritas reporters have uh, sent a letter to the board that uh, unless the board resigns today, they are all quitting as a block. Oh, that makes it fun. That's good. I'm glad you said something dramatic like that because I was I was starting to get bored with the story. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, and that's, I think that's the end of the story, but basically there has been confirmation. He's got confirmation from three sources that the board has basically made this stand uh, that And one of the insiders at Project Veritas says the only thing that makes sense is that someone on the board of the organization is trying to destroy it from within. There no is no other explanation. I think it's and that director, uh, Strack. Is that his Strack, name? the Goldman guy. Right. Yeah. I think it's him and, and whoever he's working with. And this other Hinkley guy. That's my who, personal who opinion. Who, Don't sue me, Strack. Don't sue right. us. Don't sue Jeremy. Well. It's my personal know. opinion that you are stealing $20 million. Well, he's put his name on the letters, you know, that have basically James showed evidence that those letters were lying to the public, um, you know, that that he was removed with pay when he wasn't, that he was still part of the company when he wasn't, 
you know, legally, technically, he was legally removed, and they were saying nothing's happened to James, and we love James. I'm so. just saying that it is my own personal opinion, and and not a fact. It's just my opinion that the guy might be a creep and a thief stealing twenty million dollars. I'm just saying that's <laughs> that's it's just an opinion. I don't know. Nobody can know that. You know, it's possible that the guy just robbed $20 million from James O'Keefe and really from his donors. You don't have to worry about getting sued for that. Just don't call him a crisis actor. <laughs> we would have to have something to come after, Jeremy. Get sued We're on EP1. They're going to come collect EP1. Hey, I, I do want to take one victory lap, though, on, on, on James O'Keefe's story before, before we move on. And it's going to require a tiny bit of explanation because while this is episode one, the fact is, is that this is actually, in a way, episode 10, because we've had nine previous rehearsal episodes where we did full episodes with no audience, no distribution, a test audience of, you know, a few very trusted souls that helped us. Well, really, you should be grateful that they gave us feedback because we sound much better than we did nine rehearsals ago. But we hope uh, <laughs> this we is hope. Uh, we talked about James O'Keefe when this story broke in episode point seven. That's what we called our, our rehearsal episodes. Point one, point two. I, you probably get it from here on. I don't need to go on counting point seven. Uh, we talked about James O'Keefe and here was we were talking about, well, what's going to happen? And I made a prediction that I was concerned. I was uh, on thin ice with for a moment because uh I was contradicted by the board of, of Project Veritas, but here was my prediction. Project Veritas will probably go on. I'm making a prediction. James is gone. Um, I think the board meeting That's is probably a, prediction? a formality. You're predicting That's, it? I'm predicting it. I'm predicting that whatever it is that is going on is already a fait accompli, if I'm saying that correctly. This is already written. It's already done. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Do you like the do you like the effect I put on there so that you could tell it was from a previous episode? I put a little television audio effect on there. Is that right? Yeah, listen. Board meeting is probably prediction? a formality. Predicting it? You hear the difference? Totally. Yeah. That's so the, that's so the listening audience can can hear the difference. Anyway, there's my oh, little boy. victory lap. And and in future episodes, I hope to be able to deliver the same kind of uh, breaking and accurate predictions. And oh. uh, if you're ever wrong, I'll play those clips. <laughs> That's not allowed. <laughs> you don't want to discredit yeah, your, you your can, I'll let you boast, but I'll call you out. You know, I'll let you boast when you're right, but when you're wrong, I'm going to hammer you. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Especially That's, if you're wrong and I'm right. Just remember, you you know my my credibility or lack thereof might rub off on you. I so believe me, I'm worried about it. Well, I think that's enough, James O'Keefe. Yeah, but it is quite fascinating. I do think it will be interesting to continue to see it unfold, especially after this. Uh, his journalists took a stand today. Uh, word is on the inside, some of those board members are freaking out. That's what the Project Veritas insider has told the Gateway Pundit. Uh, 
Yeah, well, whoever's doing this is probably happy to watch the the weak board members who are are, are actually allies of James. They're gonna they'll resign and they'll flee, and then they'll have full control over the board. They'll just appoint their own people. Uh, it's all well, part of the plan, Jeremy. It's all part damage of the plan. Is done. It is. They took a giant dump on James, and there's no way for him and that board to ever work together again. They 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 could say that they didn't let him go, but they took a giant they totally discredited him, took a giant dump right. on him. So that that speaks louder than their words. Anyway, Ukraine. Ukraine is always a giant story. I'm calling it Cold War Three. Uh, the, there was the first Cold War, and then there's the current uh, American Cold Civil War, and then uh, and then now there's the new Cold War between us and Russia and China. So Cold you know, War Three, Cold War Three, and I don't know how cold it's going to be. The, the, the name's not going to last very long because it looks like we're going to be. Gonna turn in, to it a looks hot like we war. may already be in World War Three. But I'm watching the coverage, and I caught a Bloomberg report that there was a, there was a contradiction in the Bloomberg report. They, their BS doesn't even outlast their own report. Jeremy, listen to this. The war. Oh, and don't you love their, don't you love the, the, the music library production sound they put on there? It informs me when I hear that, that I'm listening to a serious newscast. Right, exactly. The war in Ukraine has arguably provoked the most profound change in the world order since World War II, one in which Vladimir Putin has found himself increasingly isolated. Okay, Vladimir Putin finds himself increasingly isolated. Moments later in the same report... The war has brought Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping closer. Wait, what? (laughs) <laughs> so they're, well, then they remain isolated together. The fringe country of China? <laughs> I mean, that's... This, yes. Uh, uh, wait, it gets even better. The war has brought Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping closer. China has increased imports of Russian oil, but also sought support over Taiwan. Russia has also turned to Iran to defy sanctions, with a new $25 billion trade route through the Caspian Sea. Oh, they're isolated with their twenty-five, their new $25 billion trade route through the Caspian yes, they Sea. Have, they have isolated themselves into a whole bunch of new friendships. <laughs> Others, like India, have declined to condemn Russian aggression while benefiting from cheaper oil. Meanwhile, Turkey is playing the mediator role amid deepening economic ties with Russia. So Everybody pay close attention because we're going to explain to you which countries are on which side. Exactly. Yes, they're they are definitely establishing the narrative. They're they're training everybody. But I I just was blown away that that they contradicted themselves so quickly in the same in one report. They didn't, it, the B, like I said, the BS didn't even survive its own report. Uh, and by the way, that, pay attention to that Turkey situation, that Turkey situation. I'm about to, I'm about to talk more about that uh, after we wrap up Ukraine. Um, Cause Turkey, Turkey's critical here. Uh, so uh, that's, that's Bloomberg. I also have voice of America and here, this is about uh, Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, uh, and his tough talk with China. China has been engaged in providing 
rhetorical, political, diplomatic support to Russia, but we have information that gives us concern that they are considering providing lethal support to Russia in, uh, in the war against Ukraine. And it was important for me to share very clearly with, with Wang Yi uh, that this would be a serious problem. Yeah, and I'm sure that they were uh, terrified by that message. And so uh, ch- deepening ties with, between China and Russia, and, and if that happens, we are definitely in a full proxy war between ourselves and Russia and China. And look, I'm old enough to remember the proxy wars of the Cold War. We always tried to strive for plausible deniability. Both sides did when we were engaged in Vietnam. The Soviets tried to engage in plausible deniability as they were slaughtering us in Afghanistan. When the Soviets were there, we were slaughtering them with the plausible deniability that it wasn't us. That's all gone now. We're just openly on the table uh, we're, we're, and we're one step away from direct warfare with them. We're sending weapon systems. We're sending money. And next is just sending troops. I mean, what, what's going to happen when they can no longer, they can't, they can't train quickly enough on the weapon systems they need. And they're going to be overrun by Putin. We, they either have to be, either Putin is going to be allowed to overrun them or we're going to send in troops. But, you know, Blinken's, Blinken's warning them. So I'm sure that it's, I'm sure that it's all fine. Uh, and so maybe he'll send a balloon over China. <laughs> well, and, uh, yeah, don't do it. I don't think we're we can even send do a that balloon now. over your country. I'm not sure. We're, yeah. Well, pay attention to the balloons. Don't pay attention to us heading to hot war. And and uh, like here, you know, you have Lindsey Graham. I've got a clip from Lindsey Graham, also from this Voice of America clip where, you know, Voice of America, you know, he, we're here to deconstruct propaganda propaganda in our in our national narrative in our in our culture voice of america is blatantly propaganda so this this fits right in and they're carrying the propaganda from lindsey graham you beat him by giving the ukrainians the military capability to drive the russians out of ukraine you label putin's russia as a state sponsor of terrorism you create international tribunals okay create international tribunals well that's interesting and and uh, Joe Biden uh, jumps on the on that bandwagon. I'm going to play a clip, but I may need to translate because there's a like a a, a, a Fetterman filter on everything uh, Joe Biden says. So uh, hold on, I'll play it. You tell me if you understand it. Pulling people out of apartments and being shelled and literally, I think, is war crimes. <laughs> do you need do you need translation of that? No, I understand perfectly what he's saying. <laughs> war crimes. <laughs> the important yeah, thing there is at the end, it's it's the war crimes. Now, okay, I I would probably tend to agree that Putin is absolutely committing war crimes. He's 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 targeting civilians. Putin's a bad dude. Putin. I would be happy if Putin was gone tomorrow, today. Okay, uh, but. Uh, let's think about this for a second. Uh, what leg does America have to stand on after the COVID bioweapon that we designed and China manufactured and together we unleashed on the world? Uh, accidentally, let's say. What leg do we have to stand in on? Soup. In soup. Exactly. Uh, and it didn't, I'm sorry, refresh my memory, Jeremy. Didn't Biden bomb a wedding party? Murdering 10 people in Afghanistan after his chaotic exit. 
that's kind of a war crime too if we're t- if we're taking it from the same standard that 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 he's saying. Uh, you know, and, and, mm, not when we do it. Not when we do well, it. Well, maybe okay. that's why we shouldn't do it because we're walking around with the shame stick, uh, accusing people of war crimes. And like I said, it's I think it's totally accurate that Putin's committed war crimes. So have we. So who are we to say? It's like when China accuses us now. That's what that's what progressives have taken us to. We have all the credibility of the Communist Party of China now. Congratulations. We're progressive. Woohoo. Yep. We are in the Marxist utopia now of America. So that's the and, that's the uh, Ukraine update. Uh, I don't know if you have anything to add on that, but I sorry, I interrupted you about the Marxist utopia in America. I'm just running hot no, right that's now. That's all. I agree with you. I think it's a shame, you know, and and we watched it for years. We watched the country be demarketed uh from the term or the or the demarketing of the term American exceptionalism. Uh that, you know, America's exceptional just like every other country in the world has exceptional traits. It was the wonderful leader Barack Obama who made those comments and of course people on uh, the pro-American side of the narrative war were outraged when he did that but I do believe they have successfully reshaped the country uh, to that uh, to fit that claim and when you look at the way we behave around the world now, yeah, we do seem to be behaving just like most of or any of the other countries that are out there. So our yeah. exceptionalism must be on par with theirs. Well, sad. who's got it worse, the people of Ukraine or the people of Turkey? Those poor people might be the, the same. The Maybe earthquake the there is so devastating. So, and uh, actually, and I have a clip about that. And again, it comes from that Voice of America clip uh, regarding Anthony Blinken. And follow me here. We're going to go on a we're going to go on a voyage here. All right, let's start. Let's start down this voyage. Can arrived in Turkey, where he toured the damage caused by the recent earthquakes. He announced an extra one hundred million dollars in USA to Turkey and Syria. His visit was seen by Brookings Institution analyst Kemal Kirishi as an opportunity to ease bilateral tensions. Now, Brookings is, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, Jeremy, it's a very, very liberal outfit, a liberal think tank. Is that correct? Yeah, very left-wing think tank. Left-wing, sorry. That's a more accurate uh, term. Yeah. Right before the earthquakes, one of uh, the ministers in in Turkey uh, was uh, using uh, using very uh, disconcerting, discouraging uh, language towards uh, the uh, the United States. In particular, I think this uh, re re engagement may offer opportunities for some room for uh, cooperation to to e- e- emerge. Never let a crisis go to waste, as the left likes to say. Yes, and I also think that it, if they give us $100 million, we will consider talking to them. <laughs> we will consider having maybe some partial opening to our relationship. Oh, I, 
at this point, they're they're going to be willing to talk to anybody that's going to ha- hand them cash. And you have to imagine China and the United States are both rushing in to purchase what's left of Turkey. That's my guess. It looked like it was pretty devastating. So they're getting $100 million of our dollars. Those are our yeah. dollars, taxpayer dollars. That's what he said, right? $100 million? Well, How more many specifically, billions? Ohio, Ohio taxpayer dollars. Yeah, right. How many billions have gone to Ukraine so far? Right. No, it's a it's a it's a drop in the bucket. And I think uh, a few years ago there was an earthquake in Turkey, and we sent 180 million dollars. So, and this one was far worse, much more damage. So, well, mm-hmm. now uh, this is an unimaginable trauma. It's unspeakable, and and you know the media here is awful, but the media over there is even worse. In fact, this is you know the reaction over there you can think of as a window into our future, given the state of our media in this country. They people operate off of rumors there, and you know you really sort of seen that starting to happen here in this country as well. Although the rumors tend to be more correct in our country than the fact, the so-called facts were given. But this is a Romanian senator. And I'm not going to even give her name because I'm going to totally butcher her name. Uh, oh, say it, say it. Diana Sosawaka. Sosoaka. But it's Sosoacha. I don't know how they pronounce their Z's. <laughs> yeah. Sosoacha. Sosoacha. Uh, I'm going to clip that. I'm going to clip that. <laughs> she uh, she uh, came out and blamed earthquake machines. Uh, there's a video of her in her parliament. Um and she cites as proof that Western countries shut their embassies the week before the earthquakes like they knew something was coming. And here, I'll play a little bit of her clip. Jeremy, do you want to live translate that? So, you know, you can't understand it, but she's saying that it was earthquake machines and the proof of that is that that we had that the West had warning, and the proof of that is because we closed our embassies. You could understand that. It's it has uh, it has closed captioning, so I'm trusting oh. the person who put it up there. Maybe she's talking about you know uh, 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 you know building a freeway. I don't know. <laughs> I'm I'm trusting that this is what she's actually talking about. Yeah, who did that translation? Are you sure that's legitimate? Well, here's here's the, I there's been no pushback. Or did you get baited? Should we pe- should we let's play it in full for the audience and and then hopefully we'll have a listener who speaks this language that can that can It's Turkish? It's she's Romanian. Romanian. Okay. After a series of Quran This is from France 24. After a series of Quran burnings across Europe, nine western countries have announced they are temporarily closing their diplomatic missions in Turkey. Countries such as the US and Germany are saying attacks against their citizens could be more likely in the country. Ambassadors from the nine countries were summoned to Ankara and criticized for their decision, which Turkey says will harm tourism. Unfortunately, this decision was made on the day we announced our tourism gains on targets. That's the Turkish interior minister. These countries are waging psychological warfare against Turkey. The series of Quran burnings started in January when one was burned outside the Turkish embassy in Sweden. The act has generated anger amongst Turkey's majority Muslim population. And so they're showing footage of Muslims in Turkey 
holding, you know, fiery, literally fiery, angry protests, mostly peaceful. Uh, in yeah, that's a mostly peaceful in Turkey outside of the embassies that had been shut down. So you know, good call. In the past two weeks, burnings of the Holy Book have also happened in Denmark and the Netherlands. The Turkish foreign minister said a similar protest in Norway had been halted. You see what happened in Sweden and Denmark. The same thing would have happened in Norway. But we summoned the Norwegian ambassador to the ministry in the morning. They have since withdrawn permission. This is not about freedom of expression. This is a hate crime. This is not about freedom of expression. This is about following the Sharia law, infidel. So, you know, I don't think that these Koran burnings happen... Uh, organically, I think these are setups uh, that are designed to uh, inflame and wedge, uh, inflame the Muslim world. Uh, and I think there's a number of different possible actors who would be interested in seeing that happen. But follow me here for just a second, Jeremy. Let's recap. There are Koran burnings in Sweden. Angry protests break out in Turkey. Embassies close in advance of those angry protests, knowing that they're coming. The earthquake hits, and therefore America is to blame for the earthquake. Well, <laughs> that's that's where we are. <laughs> that's uh, is America to blame for the earthquake, Jeremy? I think that's really the question: Is America to blame for the earthquake? Do we have earthquake machines? Ah, it is. Said? Okay, this is funny that you asked because I I didn't want to just dismiss her out of hand. That is what we're trained to do. We're trained to think she's just a conspiracy theorist. So I went digging and I found I found this. This is, uh, 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 well, here, let me play the clip. It's about Tesla, not the company, the original. Tesla patented a steam-powered mechanical oscillator that vibrated at high speeds to generate electricity in 1893. Years after patenting his invention, he told reporters that he caused the ground to shake one day while attempting to tune his mechanical oscillator to the vibration of the building housing his New York City laboratory. Throughout the test, Tesla kept increasing power and heard cracking sounds. Suddenly, he recalled, all the heavy machinery in the place was flying around. I grabbed a hammer and broke the machine. The building would have been down about our ears in another few minutes. So, okay, well, that's interesting. What was that? Where was that from? That is from. I'll, I'll have it in a minute. Um, that that was it. It's on. It's from YouTube. It's a it's a documentary on YouTube, and, and it sounds, you know, it doesn't sound like a terrific documentary. Frankly, it sounds like something that might be on History Channel. Uh, or, you know, that maybe didn't make it to History Channel. So I kept digging, frankly. It, it, I didn't take that report at face value. It sounded kind of removed from maybe firsthand knowledge. And I found this from, do you remember the show Mythbusters? I've heard of it. I, th I might have seen it a couple times back in the day. Yeah, it's an old show from the Discovery Network. Uh, two guys who were, uh, they I think they designed uh, stunts and effects for, uh, for motion pictures. And so then they got their own show where they would, uh, you know, bust myths using engineering and recreating situations. And so they tackled the Tesla earthquake machine. And here's an excerpt from that. And please, uh, 
Forgive me for the quality of this audio. It's terrible quality. It's the source. I couldn't find a better version of it, but the point is important. It's time to use Tesla's device to bring the bridge down. It sounds like it came from a previous episode of ours. <laughs> it has the, the, <laughs> the television filter on it. This is intense. So all they need to do is find a good spot to attach their earthquake machine, turn it on, and tune it in. He's holding on to uh, one of the steel bars. I, I feel a, a vibration that is oscillating here. After some more tuning, they find a sweet spot. All the fun. like a, a big semi-trailer truck is rolling right by us right now. And that's only six pounds of weight moving 25 times per second. It actually makes me a little concerned, believe it or not. I'm totally started to come out here and find this thing vibrating at the correct frequency to be felt hundreds of feet away from the source. That is totally amazing. Six pounds oscillating, and you feel it hundreds of feet from the source. I did not. I I, I'm not a religious follower of Tesla, so I I did not know about this invention. I guess people who love Tesla have known about it for a long time. I'm not breaking any any secrets with this, but it's it's interesting. It's out there. I have one more uh, anecdote about this sort of thing. And then, and then we can talk about it briefly. This comes from the No Agenda podcast. Uh, the No Agenda podcast, uh, uh, hosted by uh, Adam Curry and John C. Dvorak. Uh, uh, John C. Dvorak. Adam Curry is one of the uh, co-inventors of podcasting and invented the Value for Value network, which which we will talk about shortly. Here's what they have to. Here's an anecdote that. John C. Dvorak had to share. I was when I was at the University of California. I was at uh, one of the classes I think was dramatic arts, and uh, I was working with a guy on the sound system in Wheeler Auditorium, and we were tuning the auditorium, and we hit hit the frequency of the place. Yeah, and There's... it was shaking the entire building. Wow! With these two Altec Lansing voices of the theaters, we the just, building started. We're just sending a tone. Yeah. Wow, we were we were sending a tone, and I don't know how we got to whatever this frequency was, but we were changing the tone, and we hit this one frequency, and the whole building started to shake. And I suppose if we just turned the gain up a little bit and let it go, we could have brought down the place. That's a great uh, story. I've never heard this story. Yeah, I know it was like shocked the, the two of it. Was that? That's straight out of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Right here, it's almost done. So we turned this thing off immediately because there was like stuff falling on us. We're too and, right. That's right out of it. <laughs> so, but that's in the, the, the two point five. It's really low. It was a low frequency. Yeah, no, this was not. Too, I can guarantee this was not two point five. No, it was something around uh, the twenty five thirty hertz. I right. think. Well, this is the concept um, of you know an opera singer who produces the exact same frequency of the glass to glass shatters, which is real. I mean, th- that yeah, actually, it does. Ha- it can happen if you have somebody who can do that. Yeah, and okay. I don't. You know, uh, so people out there on the interwebs claim I don't have a clip for this. We're done with clips on this, but that the that harp, the harp program, 
which is some sort of antenna program uh, somewhere in the United States. I don't know exactly where that the HARP program is what is the cause of being able to project earthquakes using sound waves. Interesting. And, uh, well, we must have done it. <laughs> don't you think? Well, it's interesting. Well, though, I wouldn't the, the doubt it at this point. Although, wouldn't the but, ground but, have a frequency? But didn't that BBC guy say Turkey was still sort of neutral in all of this? Why would they be taking the brunt of it with a fake earthquake? Because they're cozying up to China and to uh, Russia. Belt and Road oh. is coming right through Turkey. Oh. So this could be a way of saying, okay, sure, China, you want Turkey? Here, enjoy it. Well... That is uh, an interesting way to look at this and think about it. Okay, well, I, I have a suggestion. My uh, my suggestion is we take credit for it. <laughs> take credit for it and tell the rest of the world to get in line <laughs> or they're next. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> well, that brings me to our citizen sponsor Ooh, we have a citizen sponsor episode do you have a citizen sponsor no i we're I in episode one. one you have a you have a citizen sponsor for us well, i have a citizen sponsor who was privileged to not white privileged but privileged to hear episode point six Okay, so are we, what are we talking about? Are we talking about your wife? Are we talking about who are we talking about here? <laughs> we are talking about one of your Chris. kids. Did one of your kids write a letter? Nope, is not is not a member of my immediate family or my distant family. It okay. is Chris from Wisconsin, and Chris from Wisconsin heard us discussing Proud Family, which is a cartoon that uh, we were talking about that has uh, an immense amount of crazy critical race theory, Black Lives Matter propaganda. That's oh, basically yes. the whole premise of this show. And Chris writes regarding Proud Family. Episode point six was an eye-opener for us as a family. Chris and his whole family listened to episode point six, which means we had a big audience that day. Uh, they, the section on the proud family and the rewriting of history helped us to see that even our homeschool materials are being impacted by CRT. Oh, wow. At homeschool, you're supposed to be safe from this in homeschooling. Keep up the good work, Chris. Thank you, Chris from Wisconsin. And yes, can you, I didn't, I mean, so now I'm learning something, right? Because we homeschool, my wife, home. we homeschool our children. And a lot of people homeschool. Uh, millions of people began homeschooling in the last couple of years because of school closures due to lockdowns and COVID insanity. But, you know, a, a big reason for homeschooling is to, you know, basically eliminate the propaganda that is coming through the government school system and other private institutions because of CRT, which is 
you know, critical race theory, which is Marxism being taught and pushed on kids in schools is something that we want to avoid. And so here now, uh, an actual homeschool curriculum materials that this family is using has, uh, they've found CRT in it, which they didn't, they weren't aware was CRT. I think until they obviously heard this section of the, of the show. And, uh, so I'm glad that we can, you know, bring that insight to people. And, uh, that's amazing. I'm so, I am elated to hear that, Jeremy. Yeah. That, that and somebody found that useful before we even have arrived at episode one. Right. And obviously that brings me to the point that a lot of what we're trying to do here is, you know, it's not that we're experts on everything because we're not, and especially you're not. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> well, I am an expert at sensing sarcasm. <laughs> Apparently, you're an expert on earthquake machines and Romanian translation. <laughs> but it is that we, you know, we've been around media for a while. We've produced video and film and all sorts of content over the last decade that's gotten us, um, you know, into in, you know, connected with other producers and content creators and media and, and we watch media. And so I think we have an interesting take, sometimes a different take that people don't hear. And I think that's kind of the, the point or the bread and butter of what we want to do is kind of say, don't, don't trust all this stuff you see. Some of it might be accurate. Most of it or a lot of it isn't. And, you know, look at things through a different lens. And even, you know, why do homeschoolers homeschool? Because they're, they want to be out of the box. They want to be out of the box and the paradigm that everything is the way everything is taught. And I think we want to be out of the box here and the way that we discuss things and, you know, bringing that experience, we have... We're going to be so out of the box, we're not going to make any money doing it, Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> we have libraries of, of content uh, that that over the last you know decade and a half of things that that still relate and are coming to fruition now um you know from from projects and and coverage that we've done i mean you've done excellent work uh like we said in the beginning documenting andrew breitbart which was was great foresight um that actually is kind of how we met that's right he, Which, he, we met you, right in his orbit. That's exactly right. Do you remember when we met? I do. You're, you're, you're talking about Right Nation, aren't you? You do? Yes. I, do you know the date? I don't know the date, but I do. I know the date. I remember our first conversation. I know the date. It could almost This sounds be romantic, an, Jeremy. <laughs> it could almost be an anniversary for us. Um, in fact, you actually met my wife before I did. Uh, and I then did met, it, did I? Yep. And then you met me before I met my wife also. Oh, wow. Uh, on Saturday, September 18th, 2010. Yes. That's and amazing. And this is where we were. This is where we were. Don't even know why you're here. You don't understand why you're here. You don't understand why you're here. We were at a protest. <laughs> who is he who's he talking to there that is andrew breitbart and he was talking to 
a whole group, an angry mob of protesters. This was one of the first times I ever was in sort of this type of setting or environment. And I was really just taken by the way Andrew was dealing with these people and, and had the courage to confront this angry mob. He dismantled How much are you getting paid? We know very well how much are you getting paid. We're not getting paid. We're not paying anybody. Nobody's getting paid. We are here. Are you here to stop the hate? Yes. Jeremy. Are you a hateful man? It, it, we should tell people this is at a Glenn Beck rally. And right. It was a big there, event. They, well, they are saying they're, they've been bust in and they're saying they're there protesting as people are going in and they're saying, stop the hate. Glenn right. Beck is hateful. And they all stop have the manufactured hate. signs all, all produced by the same one or two uh, uh, handwriting uh, samples. Right. Stop the hate. Sarah Palin's full of hate and Glenn Beck is full of hate. And Andrew Breitbart was was one of the key speakers at the event. He he came out basically to confront this Wait, no, it group. was it was when he arrived. Everybody was arriving and they would file past this group who had been positioned on the property of this of this uh, uh stadium and uh they they were positioned so that they could heckle people as they were walking in and oh right. and everybody just walked past. This is what you're programmed to do. You don't really know what to do. You're sort of a deer in the headlights. People walked past Andrew Breitbart was different. He arrived, and instead of going for the door, he went straight for this group. And that's right. what happened. Right. I'm sorry not. You're hateful. I'm a peaceful man. What are you here for? I am here to stop the hate that Glenn Beck is promulgating. Like what? One thing that he said that's hateful. One thing. One thing. One. One thing that he said that's hateful. One. One. Not a hundred. One. 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 I'm not going to fall into your trap. One. It's a trap. Truth is a trap. Truth is a trap. Episode title. And that was just classic Andrew Breitbart right there. And I saw that and I was like, man, I want to do what this guy does. <laughs> I'm like, the way that he that he came and confronted this mob and there was this like camera crew around him. I don't know who they were. <laughs> Might have been people working for Andrew Marcus <laughs> filming a movie. <laughs> And everybody's holding their cameras up sort of on the other side of this mob and just, you know, like there's a lot of adrenal adrenaline and, and energy around it. But Andrew was just so perfect. He's like, give me, you know, they're all saying, don't stop the hate, no more hate. And they're just vile. I mean, what you, you don't hear in this clip is they're using profanity. They're using horribly offensive language directed at the people going inside the event. And then here they're chanting no more hate. And Andrew just takes them down with, give me one thing hateful. Give me one example. And of course the guy can't, he says, I'm not going to fall into your trap. And Andrew says, yep, the truth is a trap and it it is it, it has been and that was where i met you for the first time that's right i remember this i remember it vividly. And you were in real estate at the time or software i was kind of getting yep i was still in uh real estate in chicago and i was kind of like i don't like what's going on in this country right now. And I feel like I want to do something about it. And this was actually the moment where I was personally like in Chicago, you know, this was when I was still captive there and, and before I escaped and I was 
trying to kind of getting involved in some local campaigns there. And it's like, man, if you try to work for any good candidate in Chicago, you're just spinning your wheels. Mm -hmm. And here and now I'm like, wow, this media thing, maybe this is a way that you can actually have a little bit more impact, at least here, because you sure you certainly need to be participating in campaigns and elections. And I still do. Um, well, you remember what now. Andrew used to say, what Breitbart used to say, politics is downstream from culture. That's right. That was kind of one of his key taglines. And, and here he is, you know, exposing and, and you're there exposing the way that they were operating. This was a total AstroTurf protest. These protesters were bust in. And, then, and, and that's where we met. And that was years. That was kind of the beginning then of years. And now over a decade of friendship and times that we then ended up working together on projects. You know, you went on to produce Hating Breitbart, which was a great film. I went on to actually work for Andrew Breitbart. And I was the last person he had hired right before he passed away. That's right. Um, after I caught Congressman Danny Davis at the Communist Party uh, USA headquarters in Chicago getting an award for lifetime in leadership. Congressman and Danny Davis. That's right. He was sitting on the House Homeland Security Committee. I asked Paul Ryan if he saw the video. He told me he did, but there's nothing that they could do about it. You know, and 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 so you were Breitbart's last great decision. <laughs> maybe I don't. I'm not going to claim that. I don't know what what else happened, and you know, from then uh, moving forward till he died. But um, but that then. You know, after he passed away, I worked there for a couple of years, but then went back to producing content independently for Rebel Pundit, which was a website I started. And you were also uh, still producing content. Uh, we were both producing content around education reform and a lot of union uh, coverage and mass movement, you know, documentation of the mass movements and the in institutional left. Right. First Amendment I related was, content, protests. Right. Yeah. I was doing a lot of work around uh, the black community in Chicago. There was a Brilliant lot work, of Jeremy. Brilliant work. A lot of people uh, in Chicago that were really standing up against the machine and completely destroying the narrative that that this is just a community of stupid people who who just vote democrat all the time you know these were people who had come out of the prison system as you know patriotic and conservative americans you had an enormous clip from from that from that coverage that uh, was sat at the top of drudge for days didn't it you affected Four days, you might yeah. have affected the outcome of a midterm election didn't you Four days, we had a headline there where we I had filmed a bunch of guys in Chicago, you know, basically laying out how uh, the the machine of the Democrat Party in Chicago operates and basically operates the same way that the prison guards operate inside of a prison. And they were comparing it uh, to how their life was. Once they got out of prison, things weren't that much different. It was and so, that, Jeremy, let me just sing your praises for a moment on, on this particular video. You produced this video so perfectly. You directed it perfectly because your backdrop was their environment. And it was, it, it looked bombed out because that's what they're living under 
in this progressive system in Chicago. Uh, you're, and even you had, you had the camera on a parallax, Jeremy, uh, for people who don't know a parallax system is you put the camera on it and it'll go, uh, from side to side and it creates a, a, a three dimensional relationship between your image and what's in the background. It's dramatic visually. It creates a very, you know, dramatic visual effect. I would just say you, you, Jeremy, I went to film school. Okay, I spent f- four years in film school. Uh, uh, spent money on that. <laughs> was really proud of that. And then you came along. <laughs> you didn't know I had an anything. <laughs> you didn't know anything about filmmaking. You didn't know anything about any of this. And Jeremy, you self-taught yourself uh, into, you became a far better filmmaker, far better documentary filmmaker, street documentary filmmaker, especially than I ever was. I felt like, wow, I, I've got to up my game. This guy who but didn't go to film school just totally overtook me, man. So, that is not true. It is true. I did not teach. And that day that we met at that protest, I was like, this is cool. I want to do this. And you said, we're going to teach you. Oh, you said that to me. I don't remember saying that, but I, I'm glad I did because, boy, did you. And I watched. I watched what you were doing, and I watched what Andrew Breitbart was doing, and I just kind of developed the craft that way. But it was great because then, you know, after AB died, you know, we still, you know, had a lot of the same friends and the same group of people getting together all the time. But And, and that helped us, you know, work together more and we put produced a lot of content together that then had gone on uh you know to to make more viral content and and shape narratives around certain news events and even then uh we've worked on uh production of some uh, you know feature length documentary content some of that that is still uh, work in progress uh, or potential to continue on there and in the midst of all of that we're like hey maybe we should do a podcast <laughs> well we have we we were tasked with producing a story that we're going to be releasing uh, a story out of Wisconsin election integrity related and we determined that uh, the best way to tell this story was at first through a podcast and so what you're witnessing is the birth of a podcast that is designed to not just look at and deconstruct the propaganda and the narrative uh, uh that that is that is responsible for our culture we are uh uh, oh shoot i just lost my train of thought oh no <laughs> wait it's i was saying something really good i was saying right. something really good and then i got and then i got You're lost talking because about I, we're not just deconstructing propaganda and narrative warfare yeah. but we're also going to bring yeah. our own for me. productions to the table yes here. we have a story that we're producing that we're going to be bringing to the table thank you I, how did right. i forget that and oh man see this is what, what happens when we're doing it live because i was censored by youtube over a decade ago, I had I had had just had my account monetized and the videos I was producing. I just started earning about five hundred dollars a month in ad revenue, and then, boom, they shut it down. Some term of service I violated, and I was never allowed to make another dollar on YouTube again. And we know that the censorship, which what we've worked on that? a lot. Of, 
That was back in 2011. So that was we, long before it became a big right, known way topic before, that people were which, being disappeared. And that became a, a topic of a, of a project that we've worked on together that we haven't promoted or, or released yet. Um, but, you know, one of the things here is, and Andrew always said it, is we need to build our own media. We need to create our own media platforms. And that was the beauty of the blog and that blogs everywhere were, 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 were gaining audience because people are sick of what the legacy media is feeding them. And here, I think in the same sense is you know, by creating a podcast where we can, you know, discuss and describe the things we see and, and share hopefully some interesting or different takes on these things, but also incorporate and, and, and bring our own film production and content creation work out there. And and I think it's, it's going to be great. I think that uh, especially if we get audience participation. That's if, critical. That's if critical. people are, are contributing with just like Chris's comment here, um, you know, how this story was helpful to his family. And that was something that I actually didn't know. Uh, it's, we, we don't use a particular homeschool curriculum with our homeschool education, but I kind of was under the impression that as long as you're homeschooling, you're safe. <laughs> and that might not be the case. And so hopefully other people listening to this too, that, that homeschool, maybe they're going to start taking a deeper look at the stuff that could be infiltrating their kids' education. So there's a lot of ways people can participate that way. People can participate uh, really by actually giving us tips to things that that we should cover. Um, We only know what we know, and that's pretty limited. Right. (laughs) So we need to know what all of you know. But you just, you can't watch everything. And I think part of understanding the narrative warfare, which is, political warfare, which is warfare. When these narratives come out, they're actually attacks against us in a war. It's a psychological war, and it's also becoming a physical war, and we are under attack by these things. And it takes multiple sources and multiple people to watch this stuff and then to to bring that stuff out and, and bring it to light and so that we can look at these things and analyze them and, and realize when we're being confronted with an attack and how to look at these things and whether or not we should be getting bent out of shape about them or whether or not uh, the intent is to distract us from something else. Or just inflame you, keep you inflamed, keep you in fear. Um, and then the other way that that people can help is that uh, we're trying to produce a quality program that sounds good that we can deliver that that is easy and enjoyable to listen to that keeps you that keeps you awake it costs money to run our studios uh it costs money to run our studios to have equipment to produce the show we're spending a lot of time on it uh if you're not somebody that's that you don't think you're good at catching news stories or you know want to participate in that sort of producer sense the other way a producer can function is like an executive producer 
and you know which would be in the form of some sort of monetary contribution or some form of trade where we're providing a value here you feel you're getting a value from us and there's some sort of value that you're able to provide in return time that, talent or treasure as they exactly. say exactly and we should tip exactly. our hat to the uh, uh, and i mentioned him earlier the uh, inventor of the value for value model, uh, Adam Curry, who was one of the inventors of podcasting. And he uh, he calls his audience, and I think we should do this too. I think it's smart. I think it is accurate. Uh, our listeners are not just listeners, they're producers. You're all producers. You're active listeners. Even if you're just a passive listener, you can be an active listener by sharing the podcast with somebody. That You're, you're all producers. Whether you're a producer they have different levels, and, and, and we can do that as well. They have producer, they have associate producer, and they have executive producer. And frankly, the important thing about this, these are credits that you can use uh, on your resume. These are credits that work at IMDb. I'm an executive producer on the No Agenda show, and I have it on my IMDb profile. And you'll be able to do the same thing with this podcast. You'll be able to participate in a very meaningful way that will deliver value to you as well. And I would just add this, that, you know, going back to, you know, being in, in the streets and, and many events and road trips and things with Andrew Breitbart and with you and a lot of our other friends, like the the best part about all of that and even up until now is, is it, that it always was fun. It was always, we always had a, a good time. And I think that's kind of, part of how it's been for us to work together over the last several years is we've got a lot of funny moments, conversations, interesting things that we encounter. And if, if the audience, you know, wants to kind of join in that, (laughs) have fun, like this should be a fun community. It should be time that if you're listening to the show or you're participating in the show, you're having fun with it because there's a lot of dark things that are happening right now in this world that we're living in. And we still have an ability to lighten the mood sometimes. And I think that's helpful. You know, I think it's helpful if through all of this darkness that we're sifting through and understanding what sort of attack we're under, uh, if we're able to do it, and and have fun at the same time it it can boost the morale and and that's that that can really build a really cool community and something that we can build not just you and i but with other people participating also can i have some fun right now real quick <laughs> the the brain not at my I, expense no no not it's at, at my it's expense at, no no it's at my expense because i'm the oh, one who that's fine with me <laughs> I, i'm the one who had a a, a, a a an operating system shutdown in my brain and couldn't remember what i was about to say and i and i pulled this up because i i just i reminded myself of george soros this is a clip that is up on the gateway pundit George Soros at a climate change uh, conference in Munich. The melting of the in Greenland ice sheet affects. Uh, 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 and he's reading from a script. Um, uh, 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 um, and 
that was me just a few minutes ago. Thank you. I had Jeremy to rescue me. Uh, he did not have Jeremy to rescue him. This keeps going. That's not real. This is real and in real time. Would increase the level of the oceans. And he caught back up. <laughs> Yeah, I think wow. he I think he lost his spot on the page and was having trouble figuring out where he had been. It's amazing even when he's not talking in a in a way that you can understand he still sounds like some sort of scary vampire. Almost like Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> I think th- I could be wrong. That might be anti-Semitic for you to say that, Jeremy. Is that right? Is that, was Jabba the Hutt Jewish? No. you. <laughs> That's anti-Semitic, Jeremy. Oh. Well, how do you know? Are you, are you Jewish? Uh, no comment. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, I just I played that so that I would feel better by comparison. <laughs> 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 right. <laughs> Mr. Soros, Mr. Soros, are you okay? Yes, I'm, I'm okay. I just lost my spot. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, I didn't know you had that trick up your sleeve. I, I do. Very good. I do. We'll have to have Mr. Soros on as a guest. Yeah, he's a nice guy. I'm sure he would love to. So are you... Did you see this story about, are you ready to move on? Do you want to move on? Yes, as long as everybody gets the picture. And that they know that we are going to be coming to you twice a week, Tuesdays and Fridays. I think that's important to say repeatedly, Tuesdays and Fridays. We understand this is a, we've been doing a two-hour show. We When we first were kind of testing things, it started out at an hour, but and we weren't getting everything in that we wanted to hear ourselves talk about. And so now uh, we've been kind of running it about two hours. And I think the thing to, to remember there is you can pause. You can listen as you like. Go walk and, the dog that clearly right? needs to be... Let out. If you you hear my dog in the background right now, I I'm sorry about that, um, but uh, that you can join in in the fun with us and uh, on this this journey that started back in uh, September 2010 for Andrew and I. But you can do it. You can listen as you like. You can come back to the show. Uh, later, and if you don't want to listen to the whole show, don't. If you like the first, hour, <sighs> listen okay, to that. we're gonna have our there first argument. We're gonna have Bye. our first argument. Argument. <laughs> Did you have to go get your dog? Oh I no! Think there must Did be you? a delivery. There must be a delivery truck here or something. So I'm pushing the mute button. Okay, good. All right. Well, here I'll move on. There is a story about, and this is a perfect story for us because. It is clickbait, and it's not clickbait for the right. This is a story that is clickbait for the left. Let me let me play the I'll play the story first, and then we'll talk about it. Diversity, equity, inclusion. Big companies like Target, Ooh. Amazon, Intel, they're cutting these diversity jobs. The attrition rate there, look at this, 33% in the past year. That compares to 21% overall. It's a big expense for them at a time when, heck, 
you know, they're looking to cut costs and cutting jobs in general. If you look at how much big companies have spent on DE&I, it's $9.3 billion last year. And that number is basically expected to double in the next couple of years. So that's a story that is really tailor-made for people on the left to hear and start to lose their minds. It's, <gasps> these racist companies, they're, they're cutting our jobs. They're cutting the jobs. They hate black people. They're racist. And, you know, but when you take a little bit of a look under the hood, that's not really the case. Uh, people, first of all, let's just put this in context. Uh, most major companies are shedding jobs. We're in a recession, even though our president uh, tells us that uh, the economy is fantastic. Apparently, major corporations haven't gotten that word and they are laying people off by the thousands. I looked this up on, uh, I have an example on Daily Mail. They have, I don't really love the Daily Mail, but they they have a good chart up uh, showing that there are, yeah, so DEI has, uh, what was that? Did you do something? No, I just had a glitch. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I will uh, blame it on your dog. I will move on. Uh, they have a chart that show job opening declines across tech roles, and DEI is down 19%. <gasps> but software engineers are down 23%, and data science is down 27%. So... They're not really, you know, basically they're doing, the only groups doing better are HR. Well, that's convenient. They're not firing themselves. And legal, because you better be careful before you fire your lawyer. Uh, so DEI's not, DEI's not shrinking. The uh, Here's from an article from LinkedIn that comes from... Uh, well, it's unattributed on LinkedIn. Recent years have been have seen diversity and inclusion hiring boom. In the three months after George Floyd's murder, DEI job postings jumped 123%. Okay, 123%, according to data from the job site Indeed. After the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, many organizations promised to boost gender and racial diversity. Dozens brought in their first ever chief diversity and inclusion officers, which, by the way, kind of frames the whole Black Lives Matter thing for you. That was a giant money grab from the C-suites of corporate America. That's all that that was about. They created a giant bit of panic throughout the country and then held companies uh, blackmail, probably some willingly. It was like a nationwide Al Sharpton shakedown. Yeah, and... I would say that what I'm going to add to this is uh, it's it's not going to be an actual end uh, to diversity, equity, inclusion as a as a movement itself, or even as an enforced narrative that we're facing. But in in the narrative warfare that we find ourselves in, part of that includes having mass line narratives that come our way these are these are narratives that are directed at us and they're forced down our throat and right, ladies often, and, hold on i want ladies and gentlemen what you are getting here is that alinsky tactician that i was talking about <laughs> jeremy no. siegel is going to tell you how it is and believe me he's right go and oftentimes the narratives that are put toward us are so far-fetched or insane you know or just something you're not expecting and, and far from their reality which enables them opportunity for what's called binary retreat and that is where now uh, 
Okay, they have a defensive position, which is that they step back to a more politically benign posture as the conditions require. And I'm taking this from analysis, uh, which I've learned from a group called Unconstrained Analytics, and and they spell it out extremely well. There's and there's an there's an offensive method to this binary retreat which is where they throw out provocative statements and accusations early in the cycle. That is, okay, everybody's racist, your company's racist, and you have to hire all, all of these cops people are and make everything fair, right? And then they step back from that to assess how it is handled, okay? And then use that assessment to create and develop more mass line enforcement narratives for future exploitation. And that's what this to me looks like. This is a binary retreat. This is that they're saying that diversity hires are going down just by saying that she's saying diversity hires are still necessary. It's double speak here. Okay, and it makes you think that, you know, maybe this is going to be going down for a while. It's going to be less of an issue or they're backtracking. They're actually not backtracking They're They've now seen a pushback, how people respond to DEI initiatives, and they're going to take a time and a period of developing new narratives that will continue to force those ideas and narratives down our throat at a later time when it is more conducive to their plan. Well, what about the possibility though that you know they're looking at they're looking at down corporate America is downsizing, so this could be a, pre- a preemptive shot across the bow. Hey, don't forget how difficult we can make your life when we cry racism against your companies. So this could be just a matter of trying to preserve turf in a in a downturn. Well, that's it. And that's why it's binary. That's why it's considered a binary retreat, because it's at the same time, it's it's offensive and defensive in the same breath. And so I agree with you. I think you're right. It, it keeps it keeps it up, but it looks like it's a step backwards. And that provides time to adjust, you know, to the prevailing winds. Well, I wish I could feel good about them. Uh being fired but according to you i cannot because it all it's all part of their plan (laughs) that's right well uh yeah so uh i just thought like i said i thought that was a good story because it 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 has a clickbait headline to tweak people on the left but the truth about it is is actually different the truth bait is different and that's the that's what you can expect on the truth bait podcast brought to you on tuesdays and fridays are you reading fail. from a script? Again? No, I just I've got that in my head now. <laughs> you read the script too many I memorized times. My you lines, should give Jeremy. your script to George Soros. I memorized my line. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> he could memorize it instead of getting caught up in the middle of it. This is the, this is exactly saliva. the kind of coma that you can expect on Tuesdays and Fridays. <laughs> yes, wonderful. Uh, well, do you want to talk about this? Is our this is really our first formally developed segment and that is the distraction of the week award nominees jeremy the datwa the datwa distraction of the week 
Nice. You like that? Yeah. Who was that? That was my little gift to our launching inaugural episode one. Uh, Jeremy, you would not believe, I guess we'll talk, let's talk about this real quick before we get into the actual nominees. Jeremy, it's really amazing what you can do online now. That was a voiceover artist that I hired uh, online yesterday uh, with 24-hour turnaround. You're allowed 11 words, and they'll produce a stinger for you that you can drop into your podcast. And... I, it's fantastic. I, I love it. Here, wait. Let's 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 play it again. The distraction of the week. Yeah, that is awesome. Okay, so and you've actually oh, they have they sell pre-made stingers like this. This is what's called a it's called a stinger. These are called sweeps. Uh, you 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 drop them in as part of your promos, Jeremy. Did you know, do you know, well, first of all, you already heard one of them. Let me play the one you already heard. Okay, people, let's begin. I played that at the beginning of the show. Yes. And, uh, but did you know that, uh, I know you read a a letter from a listener. We, we have other listeners that have sent us in, uh, their, their feedback. Listen to this. This is great. They're just hilarious. Great show. Good show. My favorite show. I mean, how awesome is that? We're in episode one and somebody's already sent that into us. You didn't get those comments on the street? (laughs) No, this was that. These were, these are, these are our listeners, Jeremy. They usually have it on as much as I can. They're making radio fun again. Oh yeah. This is great. (laughs) And Jeremy, we are a show for all ages. I listen with my mom all the time because it's fun. I love it. <laughs> Perfect. You, do you know why people tune in, Jeremy? You never know what's going to happen next. They always never are coming know. up with new stuff, new twists. The craziest stuff happens on that show. It keeps me laughing. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> <laughs> Almost. Until you get to hear the George Soros choking on his well that's when the the, that's when the show gets stupid stupid makes me laugh and back to the distraction of the week that was the distraction of the show distracting you from the distraction of the week because it is not a fully formed segment yet Jeremy but but let's just know hold on a second let's just think about that for a second though you can just buy user feedback, listener feedback. We don't even need an audience, Jeremy. We could just buy the feedback. Which it's, would help with my other idea. Remember, my other idea was that we never release the podcast publicly, <laughs> but we just keep producing it. And those well, types of clips would reinforce in our own mind that we do have a great audience out there, even though there is none. There's our audience. <laughs> yeah, I just, I find it absolutely fascinating. And again, to me, it related to what we're doing here. Let's think about that for a second. The truth bait is we don't have, these people they, These people have never heard our show. You can purchase this. So as you're listening to content out there, uh, listener beware. <laughs> it, That's right. It, it could all be fake. 
But back to the distraction of the week stinger. I love it. Distraction of the week. But now I want to find something to add into that where it's like a man's voice going dot wa dot wa dot wa <laughs> dot wa dot wa because it's not a fatwa. It's a dot wa. Well, the first nominee of uh, the first nominee of the first episode. This is the first nominee goes to our old friends at Code Pink. Oh, I love Code Pink, the ladies in pink. Now, this is a this is a Code Pinko that we have not we've never encountered. Her name is Olivia Danucci and she made the clickbait rounds uh just recently because she confronted President Biden and his wife in a restaurant. In DC. Uh, here. President Biden, I hate to bother you. We need to end this war in Ukraine. We need to push the negotiations. I love that in the background, the giant uh, art piece of artwork above Biden's head is a giant sheep, which I think is very poetic <laughs> and appropriate. Uh, she goes on. There's no secret service to be seen. And we need to end and lift the blockade in Cuba. She's confronted by wait staff. And other people are noticing this online. I'll say it too. Uh, all of the wait staff are in masks. I assume it's mandatory. They're all in masks. Everybody dining there is not in a mask. The servants are properly masked. But I hope that we push for peace talks and negotiations and take Cuba off the state sanctioned terrorist list. So take Cuba off the state sponsored terror list. I hate to bother you. First of all, (laughs) all right, Code Pink, all they do is bother people all the time. It's like their whole existence. They're professional protesters. Oh, and she's done this before. Here she is at a Lockheed Martin event sponsored by Politico. Think about that one for a minute. For the moment. Lockheed Martin is making a killing off of killing. We're talking about the military budget. 71% of our government dollars go to making them a war profiteer. I mean, you know, I, I, I can't disagree with her. No, uh, I'm going to tell you, though, what I think is going on here, since you mentioned there's no Secret Service to be around. It's a setup. This is And, and this is kind of what Code Pink does best. I mean, you, how many times have you and I watched them, witnessed them coordinating with the Washington, D.C. Police Department, staged arrests? Frequently. And staged arrest bookings. Wasn't were we out at the democracy spring protest, which was like a corporate astroturf protest for democracy that was supposed to be modeled after the Arab Spring? Yeah, they wasted Tunisia. a bunch of money. They wasted a bunch of our money with that. And they stunt. had a pro. <laughs> they had a protest in the parking lot of the Capitol building in Washington D.C. They were on the Capitol grounds having a staged protest and where they all sat in a circle and then the police came over and said if you don't leave you're going to be arrested and then they all got arrested and then they marched them around the corner to tables where they had booking tables where they were issued a ticket that then a representative from the national lawyers guild had somehow 
miraculously had dismissed or got them all released right there. So they're not actually even arrested. They're given they a, like a summons. Jail. They're given right. a summons right there on the spot. I and then remember, they don't I, actually have to appear in court as long as their representative from the National Lawyers Guild shows up and represents the whole group. Right, and it's all dismissed. They all get dismissed. So she comes in and says, so why is this happening? Why is she coming in and saying, we must end the war? And why would they, why would they have somebody stage a protest against what's going on in Ukraine and interrupt Joe Biden's dinner? Because that's just what a crazy person would do, right? Well, here's what you know. You know that she's, she's been allowed in there. You know that. Because Secret Service isn't tackling her. And you know that whatever narrative it is that's coming out of it is a narrative they want you to have. Well, and I think what they want really to convey here is that the only type of person that would be opposed to war in Ukraine is somebody that would go to the length or extent of interrupting the president and his dinner. You know, barging into a restaurant. That's a great and call, Jeremy. That, ladies is, and gentlemen, that's what I'm talking about. That's that Alinsky brain. <laughs> Jeremy, you're right. You're absolutely stop right. Stop comparing me to Alinsky. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sorry. You, oh, you're anti-Semitic. He was Jewish. I that's read what you his don't book. like. It doesn't make me his disciple. It you used to be Jewish, understand. and now I'm sensing hostility. You keep attacking uh, a Jewish man. <laughs> Job Alinsky. of the hut. Your twin, Alinsky. Um, yeah, and you know, we've seen we've dealt with Code Pink. Just to give you a little background on the brains behind Code Pink, if you could call them brains. Here's Jody Evans, an interview I conducted quite a few years back, back in 2012. Um, but this is what Jody Evans, she's a co-founder of Code Pink. Uh she's thinks, really the money. She's she was the original money, I believe. Yeah. You know, anything new is messy. Anything at the edge of chaos, which at the edge of chaos, it isn't violent. It's just change. And change isn't violent. But why do we have to say that change is violent? Why do we have to depict that change is violent? We hold so tightly onto the status quo that is violating all of us. It's violating all of us. Nobody gets off free. The amount of poverty we have, the amount of separation between rich and poor, that doesn't serve anyone. We're all violated by that. And so that to be at the edge of possible change that we all know has to happen. I mean, it's the same thing the Tea Party's about. We're all coming at it in a different direction. This has to change. It is not working and say, oh my God, that's violent. It's not violent. Change is beautiful. Okay, the same thing the Tea Party's about. Oh, this is the same thing conservative and MAGA is about. Yes, uh, we, we're all about the same thing. Change and transformation. And uh, it's beautiful. At the edge of chaos. Oh, that's like you're going to make me dig up next week uh, clips from the World Government Summit that happened last week where George Soros talks about the exact same thing. He's saying... Uh, these are not chaotic times. These are transformational times, which I've observed transformational is just code word for revolutionary, which is what the real word Marxists love. But uh, so let me ask you a question then, Jeremy. Why does Code Pink play along with that? Are they in on the on that narrative? Do they know that they're being used for that? What's what's the play for them? Well, they position themselves as an anti-war group, right? They're, they And they're 
always protesting, not always, but oftentimes they'll be protesting war, they'll be protesting Israel and Israel's disproportionate attacks when they're bombed by Palestine or Palestinian organizations. And they 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 uh, like to play this role that they're anti-war, which but where have they not, been? For, where have they been for a year? Right, they're not really anti-war, but now we see somebody comes in screaming, "End the war in Ukraine! End the war in Ukraine!" And I, like I said, I think that's that's literally that lets them continue to po- position themselves as anti-war. And at the same time, it is, it attaches a connotation to their to anti-war people or who else is anti-war right now? President Trump, uh, MAGA people, or people who who have America First policies. Really, have, there there's become a divide on the right now or among the Republican side of things, where the the Lindsey Graham's out there are really you know they're war hawks with the left, and then there's kind of this, the other people who have America first ideas that don't want to be involved in war everywhere in the world. Right. So what do we do now that we're on the same page with, with Susie Benjamin and code pink? Right. Well, we're, we're actually not on the same page with them because what they really want is to live on the edge of chaos and push us into the beautiful sea of transformative <laughs> yes, But change. narratively, as you have described, I think accurately so, that that is what they're setting up for us narratively, that the anti-war movement is just kooky and they're, and That's they're right. Marxist and, right. you're, and you're marginalized you if you're a part of it. You possibly have a different opinion on Ukraine unless mm. you're the type of person that's going to barge into a restaurant and interrupt the president of the United States's dinner. And oh, I'm so I, I, I don't mean to bother you. I don't mean to bother you, but I came here to bother you and film it. <laughs> See, I think that they are they they are the controllers of controlled opposition on the left. They control the anti-war movement. And now that the anti-war movement is starting to kick up after a year of war, uh, that I think that they're swooping in to begin to take control of the anti-war movement so that they can control it. Yeah, I would agree with that. So that is the Code Pink uh, entry into the Distraction of the Week Award. And the second... Oh, wait, before I go, here's another thing that's amazing that these people... This is how you know it was an op. Here's a clip I dug up of... Susie Benjamin, the co-founder of Code Pink, uh, involved in a assault against Congresswoman at the time, Deborah, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. So that's that's Wasserman Schultz. Wow. They're at a they're at a podium outside the Capitol. And they're talking about uh, a democracy caucus for Venezuela. And uh, Code Pink was there to protest against this caucus. And uh, uh, Susie Benjamin is holding on to Debbie Wasserman Schultz's arm. And it's clearly, it's causing her pain, it looks like. And that's Susie Benjamin uh, being choked by by security trying to get her off of Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who looked authentically in pain in that moment. That did not look like a setup. Stop assaulting me when I'm assaulting somebody else. <laughs> right. 
Is that your Susie Benjamin? I like that. You're hurting me. You're hurting me. So uh, it, that she can get that that this group can get anywhere near the president, even a fake president like uh, President O'Biden, uh, is is the the tip off that this is a setup. It's fake, and you're being delivered a narrative. Totally staged. Totally staged. So the next one is book banning. Uh, here's a video that came out of Florida of a teacher who is, it's a black teacher uh, who is having, he's using his students as political props uh, to attack uh, DeSantis's uh, fight against uh, uh What's the critical race theory in education, uh, in in lower education uh, in, in Florida? I'm about to run up on these kids and start banning these books right away. Hey, 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 what y'all reading? What y'all reading? What you reading? The hate you give? I'm going to give you something to hate. This book's gone. Say goodbye. I shall not read books. I shall not read books. Books are bad. Books are bad. If I read, it's approved by the feds. If I read, it's approved by the feds. So clickbait, again, for both sides, frankly. Uh, It riles up the left because, oh my God, look how under siege we are. And it riles up the right because this guy's using kids as as a pawn as pawns for his political message. He's using his classroom. It's a sacred space. And he's turned it into a prop. So he's trying to... He's trying to say that what kind of books should be banned? Well, he's saying that all books are being banned. He can just, They're just banning everything. Oh, he bans okay. the dictionary in his classroom now. He's, Is that he's, real? Is he, he really doing that? No, he's 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 making a, some kind of, sounded like a skit. Well, it, it is like a skit. The guy is he's a podcaster and has a TikTok channel. Oh, okay. So I think that he really did this as a stunt for his TikTok channel. He put uh, it up on his TikTok channel. It okay. went viral. This guy used his kids for clicks. And he's really a teacher. He is a teacher. I don't know which he really is. He looks like he's more of a podcaster. Than a teacher. But yes, he is a teacher. Which is more dangerous to society, teachers or podcasters? <laughs> well, I have a feeling we're going to be treated like the danger to society. So meanwhile, yeah, you're only going to be able to read the books that are approved by the federal government. That brings us to the distraction of the week, entry number three. Roald Dahl having... Uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory uh, re-edited. And people are freaking out about that. Did you hear that story? I heard about it. Yeah, here's a clip. Roald Dahl penned countless children's classics, transporting readers to other fantastical worlds. This is from NBC News, by the way. Inspiring movies and musicals. But the versions pulled from library shelves today may not be as Dahl wrote them. Britain's Telegraph detailed hundreds of word changes across the author's works made by Dahl's publisher Puffin and the Roald Dahl Story Company since 2020. Omissions and additions related to weight, gender, race and more. 
In Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the enormously fat nine-year-old boy is now just enormous. Remember Miss Trunchbull and Matilda? Her great horsey face is no longer horsey. In The Witches, even if she is working as a cashier, has been replaced with top scientist. Yeah, no offense to cashiers everywhere. You're still valuable, too. We just have to remove you from literature because everyone should aspire to more. And the cloud men from James and the Giant Peach are now cloud people. The degree of such changes has prompted an eruption of backlash. Legendary writer Salman Rushdie tweeted, Doll was no angel, but this is absurd censorship. So the backlash is by design, as I'm sure you would agree. I have a question. Did she say the witches are being turned into scientists uh the yes let me go back and see hold on in the witches even if she is working as a cashier has been replaced with top scientist yeah cashiers have been replaced (laughs) with scientists that's where i was saying like how what a class warfare you lowly cashiers you need to be a scientist go get your degree or you're worthless no, but didn't she say The Witches? Yeah, well, that's the name of the title of the book, The Witches. Oh, the book is called The Witches. Okay. I thought she was saying the witches, who are characters, are being turned into top scientists, which would be kind of funny because they're almost like the same thing <laughs> nowadays. Well, so now that, now that NBC News has raked the muck, here they come to swoop in to let you know this is all totally normal. It's fine. Today, the Roald Dahl Story Company told NBC News reviewing works' language is not unusual. It leaned on a collective focused on inclusivity to ensure that Roald Dahl's wonderful stories and characters continue to be enjoyed by all children today, joining a growing list of publishers and literary estates reevaluating older works. Dr. Seuss Enterprises stopped six books from being published in 2021 because of racist imagery. We're not talking about um, editing or evaluating or ruining a position. This is Christopher Emden from the University of Southern California. He's an education professor. We're looking at how do we make children's literature more inclusive for all children. I have no idea why we have an issue with that. Well, clearly he's never written a book. (laughs) (laughs) But how come some books like these get to be rewritten, but then other books like Huckleberry Finn, couldn't you just change some of the language in that? Uh, you well, I think this is a slippery slope. You'll be you'll be changing language everywhere. But well, look here. Let's take let's just step back. I mean, there's from this a change a here, right? There's a change. This has gone from banning. We're not. We don't have this. Is we used to just right? Ban they're not the being books, banned. Right? No, and in fact, the publisher is attempting to keep Roald Dahl's name alive and keep his works in the public sphere. But but, but hold on. We're going to analyze this in a second. But first, let's even just ask the question, why is this story coming out now? What is it that made this story come out now? This is not pressing news. This is an evergreen story, as they say. You could put this out next month. It would be just as relevant. Why now? I think it's the distraction of the week. But the, the more inflamed you are about something like this, you're not paying attention to World War III about to happen. Or earthquake machines. <laughs> now that's a distraction too, Jeremy. Come on, keep up. <laughs> okay, now let's talk about this for a second though. My initial reaction was to be triggered, probably like most everybody who heard this story. But, uh, 
We're living in 1984. That was me. I felt that way. And then I started digging in a little bit more. And, you know, on one level, I still I still feel that way a little bit. But let me let me bring a little bit more to this discussion. The dude was a raging, raging anti-Semite. And I don't, I, when I hear in the media that somebody's labeled as an anti-Semite, I assume they're not. I go looking for firsthand sourcing of the claim because it's usually taken completely out of context and BS. And in this case, it's not. He was uh, an admitted anti-Semite. Let me read to you. I would say that that opinion is very anti-Semitic of you. <laughs> let me read to you. Well, here, let me finish and then you can tell me. The uh, This is from Time Magazine. In a review of a book about the Lebanon War that appeared in the August 1983 edition of the British Periodical Literary Review, Dahl wrote in reference to Jewish people, quote, Never before in the history of man has a race of people switched so rapidly from being much pitied victims to barbarous murderers. He also, mm. he also made reference to those powerful American Jewish bankers and asserted that the United States government was utterly dominated by the great Jewish financial institutions over there. Later that same year, he doubled down on his statements in an interview with the British magazine New Statesman. There is a trait in the Jewish character that does not provoke animosity. Uh, it Maybe it's a lack, a kind of lack of generosity towards non-Jews, he said. I mean, there's always a reason why anti-anything crops up anywhere. Even a stinker like Hitler didn't just pick on them for no reason. Okay. Stinker <laughs> he was, that <laughs> Uncle Adolf. Wow. Okay, so the guy is a raging anti-Semite. But even I, who have no comment about whether or not I am Jewish, would say that that that's not reason enough to go in and start editing the guy to make him your version of correct. It's a text. Uh, you know, really, only he should have the ability to do that. It's right? interesting because, well, but it's interesting also that you would think, given his suspected anti-Semitism, which you bring to light, he would just be canceled and banned, period. No, there's money to be made <laughs> and an example to be made. It's almost like he's being given another chance. No, he's he being, be it's being demonstrated to us that we will be, even in uh, uh, after our existence, we will have any of our incorrect thoughts uh, and, and, and statements corrected. There's no hiding from what they're doing. Yeah, this is a message to all of is, us. Is I think they're giving him another chance because he's anti-Semitic instead of just banning him outright. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, you might be right. Because they love, the, as they love to call out somebody for being anti-Semitic, they certainly love Lots of anti-Semitic folks like Elon Omar and, you know, some of the others that are out there who traffic That's true. in anti-Semitic language. Yeah, at I think it's just because there's a, there's a lot of money to be made, so they're going to rehab them. I mean, Michael Jackson was a child molester, but they still play his music because there's money to be made. How long are you going to continue to distract us with this story? Well, not, not much longer. Uh, uh, <laughs> so uh, I just want to point something out real quick. 
everyone who are, who is up in arms because they are messing with our sacred uh, uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory for political correctness. Here's what you need to understand. It was already changed. It was changed in the 1970s when they did the movie with Gene Wilder. And do you know who changed it? Roald Dahl. What? Yeah, you know what he changed? He changed the Oompa Loompas. And under great pressure, he didn't want to change them. But the Oompa Loompas, if you remember from the movie, the Oompa Loompas come from Loompa Land, where they were chased by, uh, what was it? Vinicius Canids. Am I saying that? Vinicius, was it Vinicius Canids? Do you remember? Something I like never, that. I just never saw the whole movie. Swan Gobblers or it. something. I, I I, I, it was a weird, creepy movie, and I only saw parts of it. Okay, well, so, so they already had forced a change because the Oompa Loompas in the original text did not come from Loompa land. They were African pygmies. What? Yes, they were. And they were, the illustration was like these, they looked like little black children frolicking in Africa. And in the, uh, the narrative was basically this, you know, that, that he didn't rescue them from Loompa land and bring them back to his factory. He rescued them from Africa. And that brought them, them back to his factory to work. <laughs> so that would make them slaves, wouldn't it? Well, that's the that's the implication. I I'm not so sure that that's the case. You know, I mean, uh, I think that people of the day thought, why would you want to be in the bush eating grubs? That's no that's no kind of life. They just thought that bringing you to civilization was doing you a favor. I don't think the impetus was to make them slaves or to make a message about slavery. It certainly was a message about, you know, uh, your primitiveness versus our civilization. That's, that's now. Sure. I bet you now they'll change it back so they could show how great it is to eat bugs. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> they were primitive. They're living on the edge of chaos and the beautiful transformative future that we're all uh, heading to together. So you want to know what else I dug up on um, Roald Dahl? This is actually this is this is actually interesting. I had no idea the guy was a spy. Did you know the guy was a spy? No. Yeah, a spy for Britain against the United States in nineteen thirty-nine. By the way, in nineteen thirty-nine, he joined the Royal Air Force at the beginning of World War II. While piloting an aircraft, he crash landed and was severely injured. Although he didn't die, he suffered a fracture in his skull that caused him headaches for the rest of his life. And by the way, I don't want to, I'm not making excuses for the guy, but that might have something to do with some personal character defects. The guy clearly suffered a, a permanent uh, head injury from, uh, from the war. So, I, you know, take, take that for what you will. These headaches made it so he was no longer fit to fly. So he was instead sent across to the U.S. as a spy. The British government had created a secret organization during the early days of the war that was meant to help create propaganda in America that would encourage the country to join in on the global war effort. It was dubbed the British Security Coordination, or BSC. Within a year of Roald's arrival in America, he had been officially brought into the BSC as a propagandist and spy. He had achieved some notoriety at that time and had developed a personal relationship with Theodore and Eleanor Roosevelt. What? Because of this, Roald was able to report directly to the British government about how the president felt about America's potential involvement in the war. There was also a more... That is kind of interesting. 
So he's an anti-Semite, but he was a spy for Britain helping get the United States in the war. Yeah. Don't you remember your whole life being told that uh, Britain is our ally? Right. Uh, not so sure about that anymore. I think they may see us more as a client state of theirs. Yeah, pretty sure they want to own us again. And they still use spies. I didn't know about this one. That's enlightening. Right. And this is the this is the last part I'll play because did you know that Roald Dahl wrote one of the James Bond scripts? No. You only live twice. And listen to this. I mean, the the role is basically made for him. He wrote himself. There was also a more raunchy side to his life as a spy, which made him the perfect person to script the James Bond film You Only Live Twice many years later. Like James Bond, Roald wasn't just a spy, but an unmatched womanizer. With his height, charm, and velvety voice, he had many sexual liaisons during his years as a spy. Jeremy, you have a velvety voice as well. Oh, don't ever talk to me like that <laughs> on or off this show. Jeremy, listen to the rest. <laughs> he was able to seduce the wives of women in power and then report back to the British government whatever information they let spill during pillow talk. It gets better. In addition to gathering information, he was also able to implant many of these women with the ideals of the BSC, and they would then echo them to their powerful husbands over breakfast the next morning. So, yep. Well, so I think they should pull his <laughs> pull all of his books right now. <laughs> yeah, ban them, get rid of them. I love his books. Don't touch his books. Leave them alone. Never read them. Yeah, they're good. Never read them. They're very good. I read the sequel to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. It was Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator. It was uh, much more fantasy driven. It was it was very good. I read James and the Giant Peach. It's great fantasy. It, it, as a young kid, it. it it opened my mind to the idea that you could write anything. You could, you, your imagination is your limit. And uh, I thought that was a, quite a contribution, even though the dude was an absolute anti-Semite and arguably a racist. And a British spy. And reading his books, that would explain why you have that British bumper sticker on your car. <laughs> on, my, <laughs> on my Mini Cooper. That's right. Yes. Well, Jeremy, I don't know if you realize this, but I don't know if you can sense it that I'm I'm out of content, and that kind of brings us to the to the end. The distraction of the week award will be announced on Friday after we have acquired a few more distractions. I would love to figure out a way. Oh, by the way, that's it says premiumbeats.com because I have to go pay for the license. <laughs> oh, I'll pay for it before we release the episode. Some, well, somebody <laughs> needs to donate 50 bucks so we can get the license for that. I just am not sure premium beats will approve of us using it until then. I'll I'll pay for it and we'll and we'll put it on and we'll consider it a loan. <laughs> Uh, I would really love to figure out a way for the listener to be able to contribute to uh, the outcome for Distraction of the Week, but um, we'll develop that over time. Tune in Tuesdays and Thursdays to the Truth Bait Podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, without fail. Except not Thursday. Because it's Friday. Oh man! I oh, I almost got out of here. <laughs> you should have gone back to your script. Oh, wait a second. Hold on. <laughs> oh 
man, that's that is just sad. I'm gonna do a record scratch. That was a George Soros. <laughs> Even though that was it's a totally, George Soros. Hey, I know, by I'm the way, I'm, everybody, tune in next Monday and Saturday. No, I'm looking for the. We uh, won't be here with anything new, but tune in anytime you want. No, frankly, who's going to listen on actually Tuesday and Friday? You can tune in on Saturday. That's the beauty of a podcast. Tune in on Thursday. You're going to get Tuesday's podcast, but it's still going to be relevant. Was that part of your script? That sounded good. I just made that up on the fly out of panic for the total F up I made. <laughs> hey, watch your language. Uh, it's for foul, fouled up. I fouled up. Good. Yes. Thank you. No offense to your chickens. <laughs> All right. Well, yes, Tuesdays and Fridays. I'm going to be doing the broadcast on Thursday, uh, but apparently Jeremy won't be joining me till Friday. <laughs> well, give me time to catch up because you're always so far ahead of me. Thank you to everybody for listening. And thank you to Chris for writing in. Yes, we need more of that, more feedback, more citizen sponsors. All right. And now back to the sea of clickbait with you all.